Welcome to the Duke and Duchess podcast. Welcome back. My name's Chad. I'm Liz. And we are here in episode 130, where we will be covering chapters 6 and 7 of Dead House Gates by Stephen Erickson. Our next book club will cover chapters 8 through 9. And before we get into our content proper, Liz has a special announcement for us. I do. Uh, We have been invited here on the Duke and Duchess podcast to participate in a cross-promotional podcast opportunity with the Casters Guild. I've got a podcast opportunity. You just, (laughs) you can't refuse. Stop making fun of my word choice. (laughs) (laughs) You could make tens of cents. Uh, Rick and Baron from the Casters Guild will be guest starring in an episode with us, and we are going to be guest starring in an episode of their podcast. So check them out if you want to catch up on their episodes. I believe they are on Apple Podcasts, Twitch, and YouTube if you want to be caught up. And the name of the podcast is, again? The Casters Guild. And they are also on Twitter at Caster Guild. All right, so... Chapter Well, I guess before we get into chapter six proper, we have a section epigraph. We can't really call them snapters. We got a snector, the snippet before the section, snection. Oh, I think you're taking it too far I there. I probably am. My darling. Why don't you read that to us? I have walked old roads this day that became ghost with the coming night and were gone to my eyes with dawn. Such was my journey, leagues across centuries, in one blink of the sun. Yeah, this section seems to say, history, am I right? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, we don't know much about who the the Pardue were. This is a Pardue epitaph, but obviously this is a very thematically appropriate bit of poetry here. Um, We have some of our characters descending on a very old road, mm-hmm. um, the path of hands, obviously there's a lot of references to, to roads and to immortal beings to whom many years is like a, a blink of the sun. So mm-hmm. very thematically appropriate. Yeah. You know why history repeats itself, right? Oh dear. Why? Because it's old. <laughs> Good one. All right. Getting into chapter six. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> I don't know that trumpet sounds are really appropriate, but (laughs) maybe it should be more like, you know, like drums and chanting, oomba, taka, or whatever. This is a pretty intense uh, narrative Uh, segment, these two chapters. Yeah, yeah. In chapter six, Felison, Hebrick, and Bauden escape the Otateral mines in the wake of a Dosi rebellion against their Malazan overlords. The escape is narrow, with Felison being attacked by bloodflies and Hebrick's god Fenner stepping in to save him. Beneth, Felison's abuser, does not make it out, even though she sends Bodin back for him. Duker and Culp are on their way to pick Hebrick up, but they are divided when the rebellion hits. Culp escapes on a ship crewed by followers of Fenner, and Duker heads back to find Coltane. 
Mappo and Acarium have been sent to find a broom for their host, Iskarl Pust. They find it in an old fishing boat that has been mysteriously deposited in the middle of the fortress. Pust sends our lovable duo out to witness a magical rebirth somewhere in Raraku. Fiddler, Crocus, and Absalar find themselves chased into the whirlwind by the Grawl. They follow an old road, hoping it will take them to Tremolor, the ancient gate, or to safety. Callum, can't forget about him, is still on his own treacherous journey slash buddy cop adventure with his demon dinosaur apt, hijinks ensue. <laughs> Lots of hijinks in this chapter. This is a long chapter. I knew a few doses in college. Did you? Yeah, I did, yeah. They're all entrepreneurs now. But. <laughs> <laughs> They're all girl bosses. Yeah, I, but they weren't like that then. So we have a snapter leading into chapter six. It goes like this. Early in Kellenved's reign, cults proliferated among the Imperial armies, particularly among the Marines. It should be remembered that this was also the time of Dasem Altor, the first sword and supreme commander of the Malazan forces, a man sworn to hood. So this is from us. Duker's history of the Malazan campaigns. And this all becomes very relevant to the plot in this chapter, mm-hmm. obviously, but also, and we'll go into detail about that later, but first just emphasizes the point that we see over and over in, in this world that the gods are not some kind of, you know, esoteric concept. Um, they're not something that people really have to take on faith for the most part. The gods are very, you know, real beings that um, they're tangible and they touch the world in tangible ways. And it's, I don't know, it's kind of a, it, it's a departure from when we think of a cult, okay? Mm-hmm. It's people who are who are out there kind of grasping at straws to find some meaning uh, versus, you know, when you have a cult in, in the world, in the world of Malazan, it's you know they have a much more real being that they're holding on to. Strongly yeah. emphasized in this chapter. You know, in our world, Heaven's Gate is just a suicide cult, but in Malazan, they ended up on that comet. They did. Yes, there you go. <laughs> you know, oh, it, too isn't soon, that, baby. Isn't that a better? Is that too soon? Is it? <laughs> <laughs> Might be. <laughs> it, I don't know. I don't know. It's been like thirty years. <laughs> I approach it sort of from a different angle. Uh, tell me. I mean, my notes, the things I actually wrote down were just Marines and cults, dot, 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 because right. we, we see that keep showing up, you know, in the, in the actual plot. Mm-hmm. But my thoughts were that it's more about the Empire sort of setting up these power structures and giving people authority and then just sort of abandoning them, but leaving them with that authority. Mm. Or some degree of that authority. So they they have these, you know, they set up these big power structures. They en- they enable these people, fists and governors and, you know, soldiers and give them this authority. Uh, and then they don't seem to have a problem with the fact that they, you know, worship a different god or that they utilize magic that comes from a different source like, you know, the seven kingdoms. And they were happy to use their magic wielders from the seven kingdoms. And then when it's no longer politically convenient, they're like... F you guys were out, but the, the structures are still there. Mm. The power is still there, you know, and for somebody to use. That's a really good point. And we get a lot in, in these two chapters. I think we get a lot more in depth into this whole idea of, you know, is the way that the Malazans do things the right way or 
is it completely the wrong way? And just this idea that it's all sort of a gray area, a moral gray area, because, you know, you start the series off with this idea of uh, evil empire is evil, right? Yeah. <laughs> but then you're just constantly throwing these nuances and these very human characters within that evil empire. And it's not even really about good and evil as much as it is about, you know, the people who are caught up in these momentous, you know, events like battles and things like that. And why do they make the decisions that they make? It's all very... It's all very sociologically oriented. You can see that. Yeah, and we, you know, we see a lot of that in some of the some of the chapters we read last time. But I think we're going to see it more um, throughout this novel, this particular novel, as we deal with this Dosi rebellion. Because, I mean, who was the empire to come and take these people over anyway, right? But right. at the same point in time, everything that we're seeing from the rebels is horrifying. Yeah. You know, it's, you know, their their way of responding with violence, which they were overtaken with violence. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when you get to see it from the other perspective, you know, if you're a 15-year-old kid who, you know, is from a Malazan family but grew up in the Seven Cities, the Dosis don't look like liberators. <laughs> they, they look like villains. Right. And you go back to the previous book and um, all the events that happened in Darugistan. And I really like how Erickson delved into the fact that, you know, Darugistan, all, you know, it being the last free city still was not, you know, a bastion of freedom. It still had its own ways in which it was not an ideal society. So there's no like, you know, again, it's not there's about no good and evil yeah, here. Yeah. It's very, um, it's all very morally gray which is it's interesting to dig into so we start off with this escape from the otodoral mine yeah mm -hmm. we and we start off with felison who is back with beneth mm -hmm. after he knocked seven shades of shit out of her <laughs> that is an interesting idi idiom i'm gonna to hold on to that one okay. in the last section right all right yeah yeah he found out that she was more than she was supposed to be and he just he just beat the snot out of her uh and she she went right back to him so we really um you know see this solidifying of of felison's you know trauma response here that um and we see her go on later to just kind of recast Beneth in her mind as something that he was not. Yeah, for sure. As someone who was not just a blatant abuser. Um, just all the mental so for in this chapter we just see all of the mental gymnastics that she has to go through to try and cope with the, you know, repeated trauma that she's been through. So one of the other elements in this chapter that's a little weird. I can't quite get my head around. We touched on it a little bit last time, but is this sort of dynamic between Beneth and Felison and Sawark? Sawark, however you want to pronounce that dude's name. And, you know, and it comes out right in the beginning when Beneth says, There's light in your eyes again, lass. Tells me you're realizing what you've become. It's an ugly light. Kill it. And he just keeps pushing, you know, this drug on her. Mm -hmm. And. Hebrick says outright, and it seems pretty confirmed by Beneth, that he has orders. He even says at one point, orders are orders, that mm -hmm. he is to keep her essentially doped up and let her kill herself. Yes. Through, through addiction. 
But then at the end of this chapter, and I'm jumping around a little bit, or the end of this section, right before they actually escape, we see Sara come and try to do some sort of favor to let her leave. Like, he doesn't stop her when he right. when he could. And it's a really weird dynamic because they both want to see her. They apparently want to see her either killed, but they don't want to kill her outright. Right. And I, I, I don't know if that's because they think that she will, you know, has some information. It seems like Beneth is still trying to get information out of her. So maybe that's why he's not killing her outright. Right. I can't imagine that they're concerned about some sort of repercussion. Like, I mean, maybe they are, but whether she dies from addiction or disease or whatever in the mines or whether she dies in the Dosi Rebellion or whether she gets murdered, is anybody in Mala City going to know? Like, I, I don't know. It, it's just, That's a weird thing I haven't quite been able to, to get my head around yet. But it's kind of ultimately kind of a moot point because I don't think we're going to see <laughs> Beneth or Salwark again. Yes, and it's interesting that we all that we see this from all through Felison's eyes, who she is accused of, and rightly so, being willfully ignorant mm-hmm. um, at this point. She's shutting out, and we've seen this over and over, her defense mechanism of just shutting down. She's not trying to hang on to any hope that her situation is going to change. No. She is just trying to feel as little as possible for as long as possible. You know, she is just throwing herself into the worst case scenario here. So it definitely, it's a it's a neat little way of, I feel like, raising the mystery because we're getting little glimpses of things that might be going on that Phyllisen sort of, you know, acknowledges in the periphery, but she never dwells on it and she's not noticing a lot of what's happening here. If you go all the way back to chapter three, there was a quote regarding a similar situation as it relates to Hebrick. Right. Uh, And it says, it was clear that Sawark had received orders to see the historian dead. Nothing so overt as murder. The political risks were too great for that. Rather, the slow wasting death of poor diet and overwork. So it does seem like there is some fear of information from the camps and treatment of some of the prisoners getting out and getting in the hands of the greater political powers. Right. But then we have the actual Dosi rebellion begin in the camp. Right. And one of the, one of the most weirdly touching things for me or compelling, I would say not even touching uh, was something that Bennett says to Felison and he, he looks at her and she's, she has obviously uh, is not looking good because Everyone who looks at her seems to be kind of overcome with this this pity and dread sort of reaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Bennett looks at her at one point and says, was it really that bad being mine? Am I to blame for you now? And it's like, wow. Like, wow. The mental gymnastics that this guy is going yeah. through <laughs> to convince himself that what he did is not that bad. Yeah. That, you yeah, know? Exactly. Absolutely. And yeah. uh, it's just... It's to see that sort of gaslighting then sink into Felicin's reaction later as she's out tromping across the desert and she sort of recasts Beneth in her mind as being her lover and as being a, a mutual relationship or someone that actually cared about her. And you're like, oh, no, wait, he passed 
her around to all of the guards. Oh, and and is about to do so immediately afterwards. A- absolutely. Absolutely. It's just so, it's so gritty and real. And unfortunately, th- you know, it's something that happens mm-hmm. for real, you know, but doesn't often like make its way into a lot of fantasy novels. This, this level of kind of honest human, just depravity. Yeah. Pimpin's hard. <laughs> really? I heard it was easy. <laughs> Oh, is that is? Oh, I'm sorry. I I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I don't have any personal experience either. But you know, I mean, you know, we not to get not to to get on a soapbox, but maybe we shouldn't throw that euphemism around as lightly as we do. I probably shouldn't. But uh, Phyllis's reaction to that statement from Beneth is that she blames herself for the spot that she is in, which is just so... Or Yeah, or at least she does in this moment out loud to him. Later we see she's happy to cast her blame somewhere else and perhaps in a, a more accurate direction. Uh, yes, yes. But I think that a lot of her reaction is uh, she she kind of leans into self-loathing more than anyone else, even though she's very nasty and poisonous to the people around her. Really, her greatest hatred is is for herself, even though she is absolutely not in this situation because of anything that she did. One other thing that I didn't really touch on in the overall summary was the role of Pella the guard. And we don't really get to see what happens to him at this point, but that he's been, we sort of get the plan unfolds. Um, we, all of the little hints we've seen in the periphery mm-hmm. come into fruition with this, this rebellion comes up and Pella is able to pull her aside. Um, she's separated from Beneth and he, she's reunited with Hebrick and bought in. And it turns out that this is, there's this whole orchestrated escape plan that she gets pulled into. One thing that's significant there in that scene um, was the that we start hearing about Fenner, and now it becomes every kind of turn of events. There seems to be a mention of Fenner and a reminder that Hebrick is a priest of Fenner. Yeah, and Pella, when he delivers Fellison to Hebrick, he says, uh, "Fenner, guard you, Hebrick." And I didn't notice that on my first read, I think it was really like my third read through. Mm-hmm. See the benefit you get when it takes us like three months to <laughs> to do that. I get to read these things three times. But it was like the third read through that I noticed and could sort of relate that back to the snapter, this idea of all of these cults that had been allowed to spring up and then just abandoned mm-hmm. amongst the members of the military. Mm-hmm. And of course, Pella being perhaps one of them. Mm-hmm. What I thought was probably the most touching part of this chapter also has to do with Pella and the escape. And it's that it seems like Bauden and Hebrick had initially planned on her being a part of the escape plan and then sort of abandoned the idea. Yes. You know, that they, they were going to leave her and they had had Pella sort of step into that role. But he makes the decision, it appears, that he makes the decision, no, he's going to stay here and, and be loyal to his his position in the military, in the Malazans, and try and fight the Dosi Rebellion, mm-hmm. as opposed to escaping. In retrospect, that probably may have been wise. I don't know that he would have survived mm-hmm. <laughs> once he got out in the deserts anyway, but, um, but you know, who's to say? 
But that, to me, was the most, I think, gut-wrenching part of this particular chapter. Mm. When they, you know, And particularly later when, you know, they get through the caves and, you know, they get on the other side and when on the other side of it and there's only two packs. Mm-hmm. You know, it does seem like they prepared food, but mm-hmm. for enough, enough food for them, but, um, or at least they tell them. They tell her that, or mm-hmm. she believes that they did. But it, it it seems very clear that push come to shove, Hebrick and Bauden were getting out of there. Mm-hmm. Fellison, okay, maybe. Mm-hmm. But they were not that concerned with her. Yeah, and it annoys me a little bit, this whole, the way that um, they were like, oh, well, you didn't want to go. Like this whole idea that, and, and I get it, uh, Fellison does not act in a way that makes her endearing to anyone and definitely had that, you know, Stockholm syndrome is not really actually a thing, I don't think. But like she had that sort of that behavior where she was attached to her abuser. But like they both had knowledge that there was an out. And, mm-hmm. you know, I understand not sharing that with the 15 year old who is acting the way that she is because she absolutely would have spilled something. Oh, yeah. And given it away. But at the same time, like acting judgmental of her that she, you know, uh, survived in the way that she did. And and they're like, oh, well, Pella gave you hints and you just didn't want to see them. He did not get... I mean... Well, he, come on. <laughs> come I mean, on. Those were the worst hints I've ever seen. They were pretty bad hints. You know that historian? You know that quote? He wrote a book, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> and he's like, I don't know. I told her. Apparently he wrote a lot of I them. told he's her like, she's getting she's out. She's just not <laughs> listening to me. <laughs> yeah. Come on, guys. Yeah, I mean... Not exactly um, pulling their weight there. I mean, I'm definitely an unabashed Fellison apologist. Um, this is that's kind of a spicy take amongst some fans, but I'm always going to be Team Fellison. Oh, but I had one more note about the um, the idea of Fenner and the mention of Fenner, and that this time through, when I was refreshing my reading, well, first off, I, I get confused because of Fenrir who was like a wolf in Norse mythology, the child Mm -hmm. of Loki. Yeah. And so I still sometimes call Fenner a wolf, but he's a boar. Boar. The boar of summer. And what I thought was significant this time is the night that this rebellion happens, there's there's a wind called the Shigai that when Felicin is standing uh, there with with Beneth right before everything kicks off. And he says, Oh, that's the summer wind. And tomorrow is the first day of summer that'll come mm. with it. And he was saying it like, Oh, it's going to, the weather's going to get bad. You're going to be miserable. But this time through, like, this is the first time that I caught that. Oh, this is significant in that. Another subtle relationship is, to the God. Yeah, exactly. So one other thing kind of go, jumping, we were kind of jump, jumping back between a couple different themes, right. the one with Fenner and then the sort of relationship with uh, Hebrick and Baldwin and whether they were or weren't going to take her. But there was another exchange where this is after Fellison gets attacked by the uh, blood flies and. Ooh, the blood flies. Oh yeah. Gross. Horrible. Pretty, pretty, pretty bad. Now, I'm sorry, I'm I'm saying that, and then I'm I'm going to throw a slight curve in there. What I noticed that I thought was really interesting about the situation with the blood flies that attack her and then ru- permanently ruin Fellison's good looks, which is one of the only things that Beneth liked about her, is that the only reason it happened is because she insisted Bauden go back mm-hmm. to find him, which is yes. why they were waiting there. When it when it attacked, otherwise mm-hmm. it would have already been in the cave. Yep. At that point, so it was her sort of, 
infatuation, for mm-hmm. lack of a better word, with Bauden that put her in this situation. We get the impression that Felison's good looks have been sort of an asset to her mm-hmm. through this whole thing, and now even that gets taken away. Mm-hmm. And it's not like it's not like it gets taken away and then she's put in a and she's rescued. Mm-hmm. It's taken away from her and she's put into just another like she just keeps getting worse and worse mm-hmm. cards being dealt to her every step of the way. But anyway, that was not what I originally intended to say. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was so it was after that happens uh, that you know she's recovering and uh, she's got this tincture that that uh, Hebrick gave her and it says he says if you drank down what's left in that tiny bottle you'd be dead minutes. This time she did laugh, the sound shaky and brittle. I might welcome Hood's gates, Hebrick. She squinted at him. The blue glow was fading. Fenner must be very forgiving. He frowned at that. I can make no sense of it, to be honest. I can think of more than one high priest to Fenner who choked at the suggestion the boar god was forgiving. He sighed. But it seems you're right. You might want to offer thanks. A sacrifice, said Fellison. I might, he growled, looking away. So the question is, you know, he looks away in a way that leads you to believe that there is a planned sacrifice. And my initial thought was, is Fellison the sacrifice? Is Fellison a sandwich? Are they bringing along a deliberately weak person so they can eat them later? <laughs> but I don't I, think so. I think the sacrifice is Hebrick. I mm-hmm. think it's. I think he intends mm-hmm. somehow to sacrifice himself. Mm-hmm. Well, Hebrick is definitely the weakest of of the three, as we learn as they're tromping through the desert. For me, this this whole scene with the blood flies, I mean, it's terrible and disgusting um, and all of that kind of stuff. But also, I love the foreshadowing leading up to it. From it, We begin the chapter with Felicin reminiscing about the priest made of flies that came you know, and confronted them before they were taken to the ships um, to noticing the the bug that was crawling around the rim mm-hmm. of Beneth's goblet and just the the feeling of foreboding that she got at that moment and just uh, all the foreshadowing that led up to this, what, what ends up becoming a pretty pivotal moment for her, like you said, with not only barely surviving, but also then having her face permanently disfigured. Well, and something appears to be happening as a result of this which we'll talk about more in the in the next chapter, but all of it seeming to stem from insects. So I had noticed that there's sort of an insect motif going through, but, uh, but strangely, and this seems obvious to me now that you mention it, I didn't really connect it back to her opening scene in this book with, you know, hood and all the the priest and the flies, mm-hmm. but that's a, that's a, it carries right through that. So that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. So they get through these caves and they get on the other side of it. And Bauden says, Dosen Polly is 30 leagues away. And yet you can see it's glow. And they talk about a storm. Mm-hmm. See, even a firestorm wouldn't be visible at such a distance. Bauden true enough. It is no firestorm. It's sorcery. Old man, a granny fight. <laughs> Best have your teeth in tight. <laughs> we about to have us a granny fight. No, it's a wizard battle. Mage battle. Mage battle. 
All right, so Duker and Culp? Yeah, so this was a, a fun comedic moment that I wrote down. They have hired a boat that was going to, in order to to take across this sort of inland sea, I, I from what I picture, and they're going to go pick up uh, Heberick mm-hmm. as he escapes. And the boat that they paid for is not seaworthy. And, it's 13 uh, feet long. They're uh, they're giving each other a hard time, and and Duker says, "Can't you do anything? What was your warrant again?" And Culp says, "Boat repair." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's not boat repair. No, it's it's not. Yeah, I, I've actually been on the ocean in a twelve foot aluminum boat. It Have is, you? It is not fun. <laughs> I can imagine. You're not going to cram five people in that boat. <laughs> right. So another thing significant in this very opening scene is they noted the summer wind that had been blowing through the mines is blowing through this town as well. And uh, it's very it's a neat symbolism of that Fenner is moving through and and is seems to be directly impacting the events that happen in this town as well. Mm-hmm. It's a nice carryover, which makes me start to guess because I hadn't picked up on that. Like if this is, you know, Fenner's wind. What side does Fenner come? You know, like is he? he, Does he appear to be on the side of the Dosi? No, because the um, he seems to be on the side of his followers because there just happens to be an inn full of Fenner cultists. Oh yeah, there you go, sitting Mm -hmm. there with a ship. And they managed to get away, and they probably shouldn't have. Exactly yeah. right. You know, when they have a high mage trying mm-hmm. to kill yeah. them, mm-hmm. they managed to escape in order to go and, and pick up this disgraced ex priest. So that seems pretty. That uh, seems like it's not a coincidence yeah, in this so let's, world. Let's go through it. So we're about f- eight paragraphs into this section. They're sitting in this bar, and it said there were no villagers present, and that's when I. I knew things were going to get bad. Like, rah, rah. See, then, uh, you, if we had been in that bar, I I would have died and you would have been aware of, because <laughs> I did not pick up on that. And then, and then it said, they watched the barman leave, and I was like, oh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, it's about to go down. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do well in a, in a revolting town, I think. So we get to meet some of these Malazan worshipers of Fenner. We don't know that's what they are at this time, but uh, the first one we meet is the ranking Malazan, a corporal by the sigil on a surcoat, who'd risen and now approached Beneth. Excuse me. Beneath the dull tin sigil was a larger stain where the surcoat's dye was unweathered. The man had once been a sergeant. And I thought that was a really powerful piece of characterization without ever having to have... But before this guy's even yeah. spoke, yeah. you know, this is a guy who played the game of fuck around and find out a few too many times. <laughs> yeah. So then we have a small mob of locals who who come and they apparently, you know, they're like, stay out of my beach town, Lebowski. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> and for some reason, a mage, but not just any mage, a high mage. And mm-hmm. you're like, where, like, why in the world? And we don't really get much of an answer as to why there's a high mage specifically in this area, other than the Dosi rebellion was way more organized than people realized. Oh yeah, the whirlwind yeah. is coming, bitches. Yeah, it's it, yeah. they are not playing. No, yeah, they're they're not fucking around. Mm-hmm. Whirlwind coming to the stage. 
So Duker and Culp end up splitting. Mm-hmm. Culp goes on with the uh, Malazan Marines to uh, rescue Heberick and to also just get the fuck away from all this insanity. Duker gets on horseback and disguise, is able to, he is uh, knowledgeable enough about the local customs that he's able to pass. He's got a reversible cape. <laughs> He, does, he just switches that shit right, around. Right, like one side's Malaz and the other side's Dosey. He's It's the Malazan equivalent of the Clark Kent spit curl. It really like, Yes, it really is. He takes off his glasses and he suddenly does. he's like, like, what the hell, man? No, I mean, that doesn't come out of the blue, though. If you really think back, and it's been a while since we... No, that phone book was, was, that phone booth was there the whole time. It's uh, it's been a while since we started this book, um, but we can remember that that it was mentioned that Duker was able to seamlessly kind of walk through the marketplace and that he was pretty much the only one of the Malazans, and that it's significant that all of the Malazans in this city, in this part of the world, seem to be uh, willfully ignoring local customs and setting themselves apart and standing out from the locals and that Duker was able to. Do you remember he was able to go? Oh, I remember. Yeah, I remember. Through the town and into that, like, you know, and and not stand out. So, And then, yeah, even when he went to the Malazan garrison, at first they were like, no no audience today, Dosi. And then, you know, before they realized who he was, I still say that it's the... It's the fantasy equivalent of the girl with the glasses and the ponytail who shakes her. I mean, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. I'm just saying. It's just not worth, it's just not worth piling on. That's all. (laughs) So he, he heads back, uh, sneaks back into the city. He wants to, he's, uh, Coltane has won Duker's loyalty at this point. So he's going to go find Coltane and find out what happened to him. And he is able to, um, convincingly join with a a group of rebels who are there the plan is to hunt coltane and unbeknownst to coltane there's like another force getting ready to sort of um sandwich him Mm -hmm. and uh his his goal is to to try and get up and and join with him again maybe he wants to be sandwiched i mean some people do i don't judge but this is not that kind of sandwich but there's a we hit we get another boar metaphor here and that the men that Duker is with compare the fleeing Malazans to a wounded boar that's about to be killed. And, and Duker, you know, of course the, the trope that the boar is the most dangerous right before it's right before it's killed. So again, we're, we're coming back to Fenner. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So now we go to Mapo and Acarium. Mapo and Acarium finding a boat. Yeah. Just finding a boat underground. Right, and a couple of things I noted Inside here. Inside a temple. First, this quote, it is not the goal of the search we value, but the journey. I noted um, this particular sentence. Uh, it said, indeed, he resented the assumption that it was worth doing at all. Mm-hmm. And book aside, that is the most apt description of my personality ever. <laughs> yes. I get it. I get it. <laughs> I wrote this one down, too, about the boat, that that Shadow had swept down on this boat and its occupant, plucked them both away and delivered them here. And Mapo and Acarium come to the conclusion that the boat belonged to Servant. Yes. Yeah, so it, so the, the connection they seem to be making is that Servant is what is left of Absalar's father. This is the boat that, you know, Becky and Dad, you mm-hmm. know, set adrift uh, or Becky's dad set adrift and, mm-hmm. you know, didn't come back. So he survived. Uh, it's so, it, it's so con. 
Itkokan. Yes, he survived, you got yeah, it. He survived Itkokan. So, I mean, the connection to, like, I mean, it's not like we have another, a lot of other um, candidates, but but the sort of, the, you know, the idea was, well, it's not Iskarl Pust, obviously, and it's probably not the donkey. So it's got to be servant. <laughs> like, or how about he's just dead? Like, like... <laughs> How about he just didn't survive? Because, you know, you're in the middle of a desert, and chances are whatever brought the boat here probably killed the inhabitant. But no, apparently it's it's servant. So I'm going to put an asterisk next to that one, because I'm not entirely sure that I buy it. Mm-hmm. And I love that they find the broom in the boat. Of course. Like, there's this whole, like, <laughs> oh, the boat's going to be a, the whole this whole thing. And they're like, oh, wait, here's a broom. Yeah, yeah, inside inside the boat. And then they come back and they find, you know, uh, Iskarl after finding his broom, um, laying out the deck of dragons. Right. Goes through this whole reading and he says, Renewal, a resurrection without the passage through Hood's gates. Renewal. He looked up and met Ikarium's eyes. You must begin a journey soon. And they and resurrection without going through Hood's gate. My initial thought was the only person we've seen for whom that could be true or has been true would be Ganos. But it seems pretty clear that they're linking this to to Shake or Shake, however you want to say that name, the lady who was killed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, the, you know, they're relating. They seem to be relating this to that event. But I don't know, like, how there was resurrection without going through the gates. Later, after Ikarium jacks Iskarl Pust up, he calms down and he says, he spoke of a resurrection. It must be considered, for the sudden death of Sheikh seems to defy every prophecy, unless indeed the renewal marks a return from Hood's gates. And Escarl Puss expects us to attend this rebirth? How, effortless, how effortlessly has he ensnared us in his mad web? For myself, I'm glad the witch is dead, and I hope she remains that way. Anyway, all of that to get to the point that they're... Um, that they are suggesting or believe that Sheikh has ascended. Yes, that is the assumption that they make. I wrote down to a list of the cards that Isgarl Pust pulls out of the deck of dragons. Mm-hmm. Before before you do that, I just want to point out one other thing. Sure. In that in that exchange, you continue to see this dynamic between Mappo and Acarium, where Mappo is saying, "Ah, you know, this guy's just crazy," and Acario yes. being Acarium being like, "Well, yeah, but mm-hmm. we should check it out." Yeah, and Mappo obviously trying to discourage him from doing it. Yes, and we learn why in the following some, chapter. Well, some of why. Some of why. So some of these cards are significant. So they go up, and in the very beginning of this exchange they go up and Scarl Pust is sitting there and he's laying out the cards and um, he lays out and you can kind of see the um, the history of the powers that have led up to through you know all the way back through book one up into this this moment um, he starts with the obelisk which is represents the past present and the future the rope opon the push mm-hmm. not the pull the scepter the throne the queen of life and the spinner of death. And I put a star next to that one because we've had this thing with spiders and Iskarl Pust up until now. Is that what the spinner means? Well, I just probably that's what I, I, stuck I was, out to me. I was like, what the hell is a spinner? Mm-hmm. But that makes that makes sense. Okay. Mm-hmm. Then we have the soldier of light, the knight of life, and the mason of dark. So 
anytime that the deck of dragons is out, I think it's uh, it's significant to look at. I wish I had taken the time to like go through and try and cast all those people. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's tricky because it's not always the same. You know, no, sometimes there's yeah. more than one person that fits that category. Or in one situation, it might be different than somewhere right. else. Right. But it's always a, a bit of foreshadowing that happens there. I also wrote down that Mappo is reflecting as they head out, you know, after Akarium puts his foot down and says, no, we're going to go see this. Mm-hmm. A- again, it's another mention of the history and the power of like the physical land in this part of the world. Mappo is reflecting on this is an, he says, this is an ancient land. We cannot guess what powers have been invested in the stone, sand and the earth. And that's been something that's been drilled into us from, yeah. from the, one of the first snapters. I mean, isn't all the land ancient? I mean, I don't know. I wasn't there, but <laughs> but it's certainly not something we saw in the last book being repeated. No, that's, that's for as sure. you know, there's something special about the Raraku, which Fiddler and company have just entered as well. Yes, they have. Yeah, Raraku marked me once long ago with this really bad tattoo. I got to get it removed. <laughs> <laughs> And that, of course, is a mention of the adventure that the bridge burners had, wherein they met Callum mm-hmm. for they the first time, and they chased then. him, chased him across the Raraku, or he chased them. They chased him. Across I think they the chased Raraku. him. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, and and Fiddler, that's you know Fiddler's. I'm getting too old for this shit moment. I know he's only 23, but in Raraku, that's 47. <laughs> So basically, they have to, the, the three of them are still being chased by the Grawl mm-hmm. for, you know, who know who even knows what at this point, impersonating a Grawl and... Yeah. and uh, for just being alive. Just basically being... For having good horses that they want to steal. It, yeah. <laughs> we'll find a crime to tie to you. Just give me that horse. So they're they're still being chased, and they, they, they find themselves faced with having to go into a sandstorm to yeah. escape. He says, wrap up your faces. We go to greet the Whirlwind. But the Whirlwind is an overly ambitious stripper named Sharon. She's whipping around the stage like a natural disaster. She's a beautiful disaster. (laughs) (laughs) And they're going to look for, well, they they go and they actually find a path, which Fiddler is surprised by because there's not a lot of paths in the desert. And he's hoping that it will take them to Tremorolore, which is, you know, the Dead House Gate, or the oh. House of the Azat. I mean, what? Okay. I mean, what? I mean, that was my prediction. Oh. But well, no, he says that it's a House of the Azath, which we know the um, we've seen a House of the Azath before in the first book. That one that grew out of the. So my prediction was right, is what you're saying. Good job, sweetheart. <laughs> but the road is interesting for a number of different reasons. First of all, it seems to be, you know, to be designed with, like, engineering skills that shouldn't exist yet. The, you know, it's sitting in this immense storm, and you would imagine that sandstorms out here, you know, have been present, uh, you know, a, a fact of life for millennia, and yet it doesn't appear to have eroded. It is arrow straight. You know, also, Crocus says, I didn't, uh, I thought there weren't supposed to be any roads out here. So... It seems that if there had been a road out there, that it would have been known or marked mm-hmm. if that road existed all the time, right? Is it all, was it always there and there was just sand covering it? 
or is it just always been kind of behind this area where there's all these storms? Anyway, what I'm getting to is it seems really strange that this incredibly well-engineered, perfectly straight road would have always existed there. Mm-hmm. It seems much more likely that it is something that showed up with the storm. Like whatever this magical force that's creating this storm also put the road there. There's certainly something unusual about it. that, And Fiddler definitely notes that as well. Fiddler then turns around and is just a total badass blowing the Grawl up that chase him in. I thought this was such a great character moment. Just the sadness that he feels over having to destroy the Grawl. Yeah. Even though they've mm-hmm. been chasing him, and obviously they were going to kill him as well. Fiddler definitely grows on you in this book, for sure. Mm-hmm. All right, and this is all we see of Callum in this section that we read. It's a short yeah, little, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but just a, a reminder that he's still there. He's still tromping across the Raruku himself with this gift slash spy from Shaik that he was given. Something is tracking him with sorcery, and he's attacked by a wolf diver um, who is fought off by his Aptorian mm-hmm. demon buddy. As well, and I didn't. I didn't have too much more to say about that, other than no. I, I yep, mean, that happened. Yep, and uh, to your to your point, he meant he he mentions that he fears that uh, the Apturian is a spy, but he even seems to allude, or he says uh, she's unleashed the whirlwind, and now the goddess rides her as certain uh, as certain as possession. But I thought he had even sort of hinted that her spirit could be possessing the Aptorian, like. Mm. But I don't know, maybe I misread that. Yeah, basically no one's sure what, what happened to Shaikh, you know, and, and I love the emphasis that like there were all these prophecies and that, you know, then she got shot in the head and just nobody knows what's going yeah. on at this point. All right, moving on to chapter seven. In this chapter, Duker manages to shake the gang of rebels he's traveling with and heads out to find Coltane. Felison, Hebrick, and Bodin continue the worst road trip ever. They find a giant finger made of jade sticking out of the desert. When Hebrick touches it, his tattoos grow darker and his stump smells like rocks. Weird. <laughs> the escapees are near death and Hebrick unconscious when Bodin attempts to get the attention of the god Fenner by touching Hebrick's rock stump to the mark of Fenner tattooed on his chest. Hijinks ensue. Fenner is accidentally and unwillingly pulled through into the mortal realm where he will be vulnerable. Whoops. Mappo reminisces about the past, and he and Akarium travel to Raraku. It's backstory time. Apparently, Mappo's hometown was obliterated, and Mappo was tasked by the Nameless Ones to ensure that something like that would never happen again. Fiddler, Crocus, and Absalar get in a bit of a pickle. In a very exciting storyline convergence, they are saved by Akarium and Mappo. Badassery abounds. So many hijinks in this section. I mean... Smell my stump. That's the that's the punk hit that uh, we didn't need. <laughs> right. A very short snapter before this uh, chapter here. Why don't you goes, read the entirety of it? I'll read the whole read the thing. whole thing. Buckle oh, I gotta in. Prepare myself. It goes. Death shall be my bridge. Tobukai so, saying. So metal. Perhaps that's too metal, though. It might be. Because sometimes you just need to get to the other side of the river. Mm-hmm. And what you need is an architect. Mm-hmm. And instead, you get the Prince of Darkness. Mm, it happens. You never yeah. know. 
So obviously, all right, Ozzy. What we'd like to do is get a two spanner here to get from this side of the river to. I'm the Prince of Darkness. <laughs> Death is my bridge. I mean, obviously, this is uh, is very thematically appropriate as well. You well, know, th- yeah. This chapter is shorter, uh, much more violent. Very violent, and one of my favorite action sequences we've read so far. But we start out with Duker. Still following Coltane. Coltane is fleeing with the Wiccans that he's in charge of, uh, what's left of the 7th Army, and about 10,000 refugees that he is sort of trying to shepherd around and keep safe. So he is not in the best scenario. No, that is a bad place to be in. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows where you are. Everybody knows where you have to go. Mm -hmm. And you have thousands of non-combatants with you. Yes. That's rough. So there's a very, um, there's a good quote I wrote down here. Um, Duker is, you know, he's been traveling with these rebels. He's been pretending to be one of the Dosi. And uh, he has claimed that he is looking for his nephew. And that's his mm-hmm. his reasoning for joining this band. But he's getting ready to break away from them. Uh, he says, knowing that should he see them again, it would be from the ranks of the Malazan army. And somehow they would be less than human then. The game that the mind must play to unleash destruction until it becomes a place you never leave. So again, like yeah. this theme we keep seeing over and over, you know, the futility of war, the machine of empire, the impact that it has on people, you know, and I, I just, I love that Erickson's characters are so self-aware and that they reflect openly on these kinds of very deep truths, but he yeah. does it in a way that's not preachy, it's not mawkish, it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's very just poignant and touching. There were two moments like that in this section with Duker uh, that I highlighted. That was the first one, so the exact same thing. And then the mm-hmm. second one towards the end, uh, as he sees a, a cloud of cape moths and he thinks mm. that he sees this ominous face mm-hmm. and then he says, Duker's imaginings were the product of fear, the all-too-human need to conjure symbolic meaning from meaningless events, nothing mm. more. You know, and I think that's another, another one that happens in these situations is mm-hmm. that people you know, searching for some sort of meaning mm-hmm. in the midst of all this tragedy will latch onto something no matter how real or true it is or isn't. Yeah. So back to the worst road trip ever. Yeah, this is a bad, <laughs> bad road trip. This is really, really bad. There are no combos. No. There's no stopping at Wawa. I mean, this is way worse than the time we put five dudes in an escort and went to went to the Jersey Shore just to get out of an exam. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't have any, I, I didn't, I failed the exam. That's, that's all. A bad idea. So that's, and that's the best thing that happened. I thought maybe you'd bring up one of our road trips with the kids, but I don't think we've ever even attempted anything longer than like an hour in the car with our children. We went to the Jersey Shore with them. Oh, God, I blocked that out. <laughs> I think we had at least one puker on that trip. Yeah, there, yeah, yeah. There was only two of them at the time. Anyway, still, worst road trip over. Fellison bought it in Heberick. Fellison's dreams are filled with rivers of blood. Rivers of blood. Yeah. So, I mean, of course, that harks back to the prophecy in the beginning of the book that we saw about, you know, twin rivers of blood clashing and all that kind of stuff. So, she dreams of rivers of blood. And amongst, like, and just to tell you how bad this road trip is, that's the best part of the road trip. 
That yeah, that's that's the highlight. <laughs> that's, that's the best part of it. Way better than what's going on during like, the day. At least I'll pass out and dream about rivers of blood. But throughout this chapter, she, you know, she just gets. I mean, she was already kind of a salty bitch, mm-hmm. and she just gets darker, more selfish, less trusting. Mm-hmm. It just gets worse and worse and worse. And by the end of this section. Like, her voice doesn't even sound like her own. Mm-hmm. Like, she's just, she's talking in ways that don't sound like her. Mm-hmm. Like, if you just compare the language to, like, the way Fellison, like, Fellison's dialogue throughout other sections of the book, it doesn't, she doesn't mm-hmm. talk like that. So, it, it 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 seems clear that there's something magical going on, and it seems like, coincidental or not, this is, it begins with the blood flies. Now, whether or not that actually has anything to do with it, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, this girl is very messed up. Though yeah. it turns out that's what happens when you take a, a sensitive teenager and just brutally traumatize her over and over and over again for a long period of time. But yeah, and we've brought this up before, the most sort of significant part of this, you know, aside from her her treatment of the people who actually rescued her is her romanticization of Beneth in her mm-hmm. mind. And it's the way that she convinces herself. Her brain is just trying to cope with the experiences that she had and the way that she latches onto of trying to survive that trauma is by changing the story of her memory mm-hmm. into Beneth being someone that cared about her. And the, obviously, that's got to be very difficult for Hebrick and Bodden, who who rescued her, to then, you know, be recast as the villains, um, especially Bodden, who she particularly seems to kind of lay into. She has these moments of sort of like self-awareness and then also moments of just just c- clear delusion, mm-hmm. you know, and there's a line fairly early on that I think sort of summarizes all this pretty well, and it's talking about the food and Hebrick giving them advice. And she says, maybe we didn't listen because none of us believed we would ever reach the coast. Maybe Hebrick decided the same day after the first meal. Only I wasn't thinking that far ahead, was I? No wise acceptance of the futility of all this. I mocked and ignored the advice out of spite, nothing more. So check in the wisdom box. Next sentence. As for Bauden, well, rare was the criminal with brains and he wasn't all that rare. Mm-hmm. Like th- this dude got you there, mm-hmm. and was like the only one. The only reason you're not dead in that camp now is mm-hmm. because of him. That that camp was filled with criminals, and he's the only one that got out. Mm-hmm. That's the definition of rare. Like, mm-hmm. like it's just objectively false. <laughs> So there's definitely something significant there and why Fellison seems so um so set on on denigrating Bodden mm-hmm. in particular. And Heberick just seems to be like, Yeah, whatever. Um, she seems to just really I mean, not that she is is kind to Heberick or doesn't have, you know, acerbic comments about his character as well. Oh, she does. But you know, this, it comes back, to me, it comes back to her overt self-loathing that she talks about over and over. She lashes out at them because they are there to witness who she's become. So she says uh, about Hebrick, I hate myself, but he hates everyone else. Which of us has the most to lose? <laughs> and I'm like, girl, you hate them too. 
Like yeah. you hate everyone else too. Yeah, she is hard to be with. Yes, and it's a hard section to read. Yeah. Like so many fantasy authors, and we talk about this all the time, like shy away from talking what trauma really does to people, you know? And this is just a very unapologetic look at. Oh, yeah. You know, what happens when you traumatize children sometimes? They don't they don't come out like a poor noble woodcutter's boy who, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's not always what happens. No. Well, and, you know, that is a pretty common fantasy trope, though, particularly from oh, yeah. a lot of fantasy written in like the 70s, 80s, 90s. Mm-hmm. That was a pretty common trope, you know, that the abused, poor, innocent, sweet boy, you know. Yeah, not not to be replicated here. I mean, sometimes everybody reacts in their own way, but it's not, it's certainly not, not common. And then they find a big ass jade hand. A big old finger. What finger do you think it was? I was just thinking that. Which one do you think? Like the universe has just been giving them the metaphorical finger. I mean, it is a a lone finger. (laughs) So I mean, it really could. I mean, there's only a couple of candidates. Is it is it a giant? Oracle gives them the finger. Right? Is it, I don't think it's a giant thumbs up. <laughs> Keep going, guys. You're doing good. That is funnier than it. Than it should be. be? I don't yeah, understand. Yeah. Uh, yes, giant finger, and when Heberick touches it. Stuff happens. Stuff happens. Smell my stump. I gotta say, it seems like a weird loophole that, like, the <laughs> gods have that, like, if your ex priest touches your statue with their stump and then touches their own chest, that's it. You're done. Like, yeah, it seems like a weird, like, so, like someone rolled a nat twenty to yeah. make that. Happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the DM was like, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Can can we roll to see? Sure. <laughs> and then they roll a natural 20 and you're like, fuck, why did I allow this to happen? That That's what it felt like to me a little bit. We, we might be harping on this because that may have happened. Oh, that's happened to us before, yeah. for sure, in a D&D game. Yeah, that's why I keep bringing it up. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, so, but so here's my question. Like, to your point of, like, the weird loophole, was it even Fenner's statue? We don't know. We do not know. It was just some big-ass random jade statue. Right. That All we know is that it's a big finger, but when Hebrick touched it, his boar tattoos got darker and began to cover more and more of his body. And, and they, the- like, deepened... Yes. It became more three-dimensional. The stump he touched it with begins to sort of distend. and uh, I thought he was growing his hands back. It it definitely, you're given that impression that that might happen. Yeah, I thought for sure. The next day, you burned your wrist on that statue. Not burn, the old man said. Hurts like Hood's own kiss, though. Can magic thrive in the Otateral sand? Can Otateral give birth to magic? I have no answers, lass, for any of this. Well, she muttered, it was a stupid thing to do, touching the damn thing. Serves you right. Like, she's just no fun. No. Nope. <laughs> Serves you. It was stupid is what it was. He's over here questioning the nature of Otateral. He's like, maybe we've 
maybe we've had the wrong idea about Otaderol this whole time. And she's like, you're a dumbass. That's Almost like a traumatized teenager needs to like go to inpatient treatment and not walk through the desert with two adult men. You might be putting our standards on <laughs> this fantasy world. Well, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> that's my job. Oh, another thing we forgot to mention. We come to a point where Hebrick is not doing so well before he, you know, before we, we get to Fenner coming back and all. Um, Hebrick collapses. Fellison is like, well, I guess I get his rations. Mm-hmm. And uh, Bodden is like, oh, you bitch. And he goes off to get him. While he's gone, Fellison goes through Bodden's stuff and mm-hmm. she finds a lockpicking kit and she finds a talon. Yeah, so I noted that down as well. Was that trying to insinuate that Bodden is an ex-claw member? Seems like it would kind of fit. Not only not only with the, you know, the claw itself being mm-hmm. in there, but also with this kind of sort of concept of like cults within Lacine's army mm-hmm. and people getting abandoned. Mm-hmm. Seems a little strange that an ex claw would get thrown into the prison, though. It does. So maybe he's not an ex claw. Hmm. Okay, so but he comes back with Hebrick and he lays him down and he touches the rock stomp to the mark of Fenner, which is the the way that well, the way that the priests of Fenner we find out would summon their warrens um, would be to touch their hand to the mark of Fenner, a mark on their hand, to the mark on their chest. Bodden tries this, and it has a huge... Explosive impact. Huge impact. Fissures on the ground. The yeah. tattoo, like, spreads out in a pattern in the air. And the god Fenner is drawn from wherever he is into the mortal realm, and he's not happy about it. What My favorite part is that, is that they managed to summon Fenner, uh, to your point, it is just this massive, like, like out of the finale of a video game, shockwave mm-hmm. from the air, and the you know mm-hmm. the, his image three dimensional, and it doesn't mm-hmm. even fit on the screen. And then Fenner immediately turns and runs away, <laughs> and fuck you, like nothing <laughs> yeah. happens. Like, like they went through this. You think it's gonna like get him out of the situation? Uh-huh. Nope. Fuck you. Nope. Done. Thanks for the ride. I'm out. <laughs> like, like that just happened. Just happened. The mm-hmm. only thing they get out of it is that Hebrick seems to have been somewhat rejuvenated. Yes. And it hints at the end of the chapter that they were closer to the coast than they realized. Yes. Hebrick comes back with some kind of seemingly some kind of foreknowledge. And he says to Fellison. When we get there, Fellison, you will find nothing has changed. Do you understand? No, of course not, you asshole. No, you asshole. (laughs) What does that mean? Jesus, man. (laughs) Kind of a these are the these are the kind of hints you guys expect me to get. (laughs) You remember that guy? Yeah. Remember that guy, Fellison? The guy who wrote a book, Fellison, remember? (laughs) Ah, ah, you get it? kind of bullshit no wonder she's you know what i'm with her no these <laughs> yeah, guys are assholes Fellison, that's right <laughs> they're terrible could not could you imagine playing 20 questions with these guys <laughs> it's a guy he wrote a book is it animal it is and it isn't no 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 fuck you that's not how this game works 
Mapo and Acarium. Back Mapo to them. Mapo and Acarium. And going up to one of my favorite parts of the book so far. Mapo and Acarium are heading towards the Raraku to see whatever it is that Iskarlpus thinks they need to see. Mapo is reflecting on his past. And uh, I, I wrote a really powerful quote. What was, for me, a very powerful quote. Hold on. Hold on. Let's read it together. Okay. Okay. On, one, on, one, two, two three. three. It you was amazing what could be endured when in the grip of inertia. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, that didn't work at all. Oh, I just started earlier. I just oh, okay. started earlier. All okay. Right. Okay. Youth's game, and he'd long grown weary of it. Yet he'd stayed, nailed to a single tree, but only because he'd grown used to the scenery around it. Ready? Now, it, it was, was amazing, amazing what, what could be endured when in the grip of inertia. inertia. You wrote that one down, too. Absolutely. This is really important thematically, but I'm not sure I've seen it stated so concisely yet in the series. Like, all the way back to Sari's recruitment and that very jaded officer who's... Mm -hmm you know, brings her into the army anyway. And we're just introduced to all of the evils being done by the empire, by people who are maybe not evil themselves, but they're jaded and they're powerless and they just are, are caught up in that inertia, mm -hmm. you know? And for me, like the deeper message is the importance of finding something to cling to other than pure self-preservation. And I, f I feel like the, characters we see them kind of stratified along the people who have that and the people they we that don't you know yeah and it it's a a good contrast having just come from uh you know the awful road trip where felison's whole mm -hmm. thing is j just survive yep. at yep. all cost doesn't matter doesn't matter if i have to eat hebrick yep. like just survive you know mm -hmm. and then to immediately bounce to this. Yes, yes. And you think about what we've seen with the bridge burners, with Crocus's little gang of thieves, and even like Crocus's connection with Absalar. Like, and not to get too sidetracked, because later I want to talk about it, but it made me think about who would Absalar have become without Crocus believing in her and without the bridge burners kind of being there, you know, even though through most of the first book, most of them wanted to murder her, they still were like, but we don't judge, you know, you're <laughs> probably an evil torturing assassin, but like, you know, they, they kind of were there for her and we get to, you know, but it was that connection, I think, that made that possible, that human connection. And that what occurs to me, what it's all about is the two extremes of human nature. And like, what do you do in the, the face of, the specter of human evil, you know? Um, and I think Erickson's answer is relationships. Yeah. Or you could build a bridge to darkness. A Was bridge that death, the death has become my bridge. bridge. <laughs> but really bullshit is that. So the most powerful example of this though, is Mapo and Acarium. I think we'll see if you agree with me later in the book, but oh, okay. um, so we have Mappo kind of returning to an area that reminds him of his hometown and uh, which was raised. And he, you know, we have this flashback of him going back to mm -hmm. the city he was born at and he was sent there by the nameless ones, which are sort of like the, the, you know, uh, magical people who are in charge of the trail 
Um, and they had predicted that this was going to happen, but they they sent him back to witness it and to, they said they're going to send him out to be an unpainted hide. The future will offer his own script, writing and shaping your history anew. And they're saying is, we do not see in years, but in centuries. But it also, like, it seems to me that one of the things that is central to the trell is the concept of vengeance and and war and he talks about you know the cycle of war and vengeance over and over again and that what they do is they take that away from him the gift of vengeance they they Mm -hmm. take it away from him um and then give him this mission and then what we see is him a you know and the mission by the way is so that this never happens again right and then we see him constantly for centuries Mm -hmm. walking around with Icarium. Mm-hmm. So it seems that the mission was to be buddy buddy mm-hmm. with the dude who committed the crime mm-hmm. so he would never do it again. Yes. That's my take on this. That's certainly this the yeah. you know, the seems to be the way things are laid out. Yeah. So like again, what a what a powerful statement on uh I wanna for lack of a better, the power of friendship, you know? Yeah. I mean. There's nothing wrong with the power of friendship. The power of friendship is awesome. Power of friendship is good. <laughs> it's good. Even metalheads have friends. That's right. Got a concert to nobody is nothing. <laughs> that's, that's no fun. That's what Swedish death metal bands do. Oh, what's cold in Sweden? What do you expect? <laughs> So to sort of sum up in this section that mm-hmm. that continuing, you know, buddy cop drama where the one cop can't remember anything. This is the weirdest lethal weapon. <laughs> I think I've already made that joke, but it's a good one. But like we don't want Mel Gibson to wake up, you right. know, because he will say some shit. <laughs> um at the very end it says, um Mappo says, We're being manipulated, he growled. I can feel it, smell it. And Akarium says, I've noted your raised hackles. For myself, I've become numb to such notions. I have felt manipulated all my life. You know? Mm-hmm. And then Mappo sort of sheepishly is like, well, I don't know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And then it was in this section as well. I, I thought it was earlier where they had mentioned uh, that Shaikh may have ascended and become one of the ascendants. I, yes. I, I thought it was earlier, but it's here where they bring that up. So now... To Fiddler and the Scooby Gang. Yes. They're becoming some of my favorite, my favorite little trio. I mean, this is just one of my favorite battles, I would say. Uh, yeah. It, there's not a ton to actually say other than, I mean, it is it is a kick-ass battle. It is a very typical Erickson batshit crazy, everything happens all at once battle. So I don't have a ton of notes, but yes, a cool, a cool battle nonetheless. Cooler for how it ends. I mean, come on. So we start out with a beast battle. Yeah. Right? And I so I just love this image of of they're going through this, they're on this road, okay, they're going through this immense sandstorm, they're being whipped by the sand and the wind and all of this stuff, and they can hear like an enormous shapeshifter battle. They can't see it. They can mm-hmm. just hear that it's right next to them. And then all of a sudden, whoosh, Fountain of blood. Yeah, random fountain of blood. <laughs> <laughs> <I don't just> <laughs> like... 
So like that just sets the tone, right? Okay. Before you even start fighting, you're covered in blood. So I really, I love Fiddler's character development because it's so subtle and so beautifully done. You know, when I think back to our, our first our introduction to him and he's with whiskey jack and they're meeting with Dujek. and whiskey jack's like fiddler you left your sword in the puddle again yeah. and fiddler's like oh, oh shit man oh man you know but then you you see him here and you see him uh, in his element with his munitions mm-hmm. and that he is just so calmly taking down you know people with these explosive arrows and such it's just, it's such a neat contrast and mm. it gives such a layer to this character. Yeah, because you meet him when he's like 12. No. The init- in the prologue or chapter one? No, no, no. It's not. The scene I'm thinking about is like right before they go oh, out. They yeah, already yeah, have yeah, Absalar. Yeah. No, yeah, he yeah. still is a dumbass sometimes. Like he's still yeah, yeah, like, yeah. you know, he's not like, he's not like a soldier born and bred from the time he was oh, 10. No, you know what I'm all. saying? No, but like what yeah. he does, he does so well. So. You know, it's not even like, oh, he he's learned to use weapons. It's like he still is. Well, what he does, he does really well. It just makes him very layered. And Absalar being a bad donkey. Oh, yeah. Okay. So they get they get covered in blood and there's this huge battle. They're trying Absalar's to avoid like, it. Ah, yes. <laughs> Finally. And up till now, we've seen Absalar. We've seen little hints that, okay, she knows and does things. But she turn. they turn and... Fiddler realizes that she sees that the Grawl have followed and that they're approaching, you know, Lance's down. Like, this is it. You're going to get skewered. And uh, she just, like, leaps through the first two and, like, one slash, bam, bam, daggers. And mm-hmm. she, like, takes down. So she's just taking down all these Grawl. You guys can't see, but I'm doing some elaborate hand motions <laughs> right now. <laughs> My microphone is in mortal peril. But... <laughs> It's just, it's a really cool sequence. And it's it's enough that Fiddler is just struck dumb for a moment. And he's mm-hmm. just kind of sitting there with his jaw open, like, what? Um, before they become overtaken by the beast battle, which kind of finally creeps into their area. And uh, Fiddler being saved by his horse made me a little verklempt, I Absolutely. have to say. Yeah, yeah. He gets, you know, his ribs bashed in pretty sp- much right off I've- the bat been around a lot of horses none of them are doing that <laughs> this is a crawl horse chad Damn. it's special come on let me have my fantasy horses <laughs> the crawl horse saves him and stands over him even so things are not looking good and the scene where fiddler goes to absalar and he says in my bag there's one last uh, i forget what it's called one last cusser and she looks at him and goes that is not going to be enough and he goes no for us for us like that is going to be better because what's approaching them is a very powerful diver that uh, is taken the form of like a multitude of greasy rats and i love that Steven Erickson has to tell us that the rats are greasy yeah. <laughs> because man uh, named Grillin. So they're about yeah. to be just, just obliterated. There's no way the, out of this. The only thing worse than Grillin in the form of thousand rats would be uh, if there was one in the form of 10,000 cockroaches named Chillin. <laughs> I don't Straight, know. I mean, <sighs> I think I would take cockroaches over storm of 10,000 cockroaches. I don't know. I don't know. You didn't grow up around cockroaches. I, this is, this is fair. (laughs) (laughs) Go on. 
Anyway, they're about. No, it's to- bad. It's bad. We're all in agreement. Okay. They're about to be overtaken by this diver, and and it's the diver of like insanity. It is. So it's you know it's not like you're going to get eaten by a t- ten thousand rats. It's that you're going to get trapped in some tormentous insanity loop before you die. I don't. Yeah. I can't even imagine. It seems bad. It seems pretty bad. Seems really bad. I'm done. <laughs> so they're about to be overtaken by this really nasty D bear. Uh, and they look up and they see a pair of, you know, leather clad legs. And it's Akarium and Mapo. Akarium is playing a BC Rich flying V. And uh, I have put my mark upon them. (laughs) Throws up the devil horns. You've been watching Stranger Things. You don't know. So what's cool about this scene for me is that up until now, you know, we've seen Akarium facing down Diver before. Mm -hmm. And then like right away, they're like, oh, shit, man, Akarium. I didn't know that was you, you know. (laughs) And so you get this impression that the Diver are maybe not that badass, like... Because we've, you know, but seeing them up against Fiddler and the gang, you're like, oh, no, they're badass. Oh, yeah. Like, just, it gives you a sense of scale mm-hmm. to how powerful Akarium is. Not that in the flashback, you know, he killed 15,000 Trell, you know, somehow, allegedly. Yeah, but, uh, you know, just it just gives you a sense of scale. Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the things Erickson does really masterfully oh, in yeah. these books. And I think you have to, you know, if... You're going to open the book with a flying moon and, uh, you know, yeah. and uh, 70 foot long dragons and, like, you know, then you, you have to, uh, you have to possess a, possess a sense of scale. They're like, but no, there's an even more powerful one. And here's an even bigger one. <laughs> it was like a bear, but it was the size of a horse, which is already the size of a bear. <laughs> but it was greasy (laughs) (laughs) that's it make it greasy oh that just makes it that happens a lot actually in this section he's like mappa was like (laughs) it was in the grasslands but all the grass was flattened and covered in grease (laughs) (laughs) where did it come from just makes it grosser. (laughs) It just does. It just does. Just does. Well, that's all I have. That's all I got. What did you, what was your impression of chapters six and seven? I I didn't even ask you. They were good chapters. You know, it's weird. You're, I'm getting accustomed to like every other chapter. There's just another batshit insane battle mm-hmm. you know and a wooden puppet walks out like mm-hmm. you know but it never it never fails to deliver it never fails to deliver so i yeah i'm it's interesting reading these books over such a prolonged period of time right because of just you know where we are um so you know it always takes a long time to read books but w- for me but when you're doing it as a part of the podcast and it's going to take us like you know two years to get through a book it won't 
you get enough distance to sort of like read other things and then come back to it and um, gives you, you know, gives you more time to sort of think of, think through these things and each little section kind of holds its own special weight. It's a, it's a cool way to actually read a book in a weird way. Mm -hmm. I still obviously would rather just sit and read the whole thing in one setting, but I do it for you. Oh, thank you, hon. I I meant them. Oh. So you ready? (laughs) Ready to move on? Are we doing predictions? Well, yes. I have one thing I wanted to bring up um, beforehand. So we didn't, because we're recording this podcast and it's sort of the opportunity to record it popped up and we didn't have time to solicit for listener feedback, um, but I want to keep the structure the same because I have an announcement. Okay. A short little announcement. I just found out, I was not aware of this, that you can rate a podcast on Spotify if you have listened to a certain number of hours of that podcast, um, which was not a feature that was initially available. And I wasn't aware of it until like a couple of days ago. So the reason why I bring it up is if you are somebody who listens to us on Spotify and you like me, were not aware that that capability existed uh, and you feel so inclined, step in and give us a rating. All right. I didn't even know you could do it. Cool. All right, so now we're going to get into predictions. You ready? Yes. All right, my first prediction. Otateral is not just an element that mutes magic, and I think that's obviously been hinted at Mm -hmm. um, here, but I'm going to say that it is a superior form of magic, and it mutes magic that is inferior. So Mm. I think it comes from like, a much, much older Warren or mm-hmm. a system that even predates Warren's. Mm-hmm. And it is, it's not that it is anti-magic, it's that it's just better magic. Okay. And it makes your magic sit the fuck down. Okay. That's my that's my guess. I like it. All right, the next one is situation with Coltane's wagon trains gonna get real sad. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's much of a prediction, but he is in a bad situation, and I think we're going to get to spend some time in the next, either the next section or the following one, just learning about how awful it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we're going to start to see more characters merge, because we so far this has been pretty split. We've had like four or five different groups who we're following, and at the end, we have Mappo and Aquarium hook up with Fiddler, Crocus, and Absalar. I think we're going to see something like that happen later. Uh, and I'm predicting, I'm predicting that Culp and Fellison will hook up, mm-hmm. which kind of makes sense. Um, but I'm also predicting that the Toblakai and Leoman show up again with okay. one of the characters at some point, because you don't name a guy Toblakai and then only have him show up for one chapter. Mm-hmm. Like I have a name theory. Oh, like the theory is that if he has a good name. Like Toblakai, he's coming back around. Mm-hmm. If he has a really, not going to waste that. No, if he has a really shitty character with a shitty name like Varid, mm-hmm. like one of the sailors, that motherfucker died. We found out his <laughs> name, and then he was dead the next time we heard about him. Right, because that is a stupid name. Right, that is a, a third tier name for Absolutely. sure. Absolutely, which is the same reason why Pornqual isn't going to make it. <laughs> but on the other hand, Toblakai will come back around. Mm-hmm. Leoman is a little weird, but but Toblakai, that's that's got to stay. So, you kind of mentioned this already, but I was saying the Fiddler talks about Tremolor mm-hmm. in a way that makes me think it's going to be where the the dead house gates are. 
Well, he does say that. He does say that outright. Yes. Then that's not really a prediction. But good catch, because it was very subtle. Well, he he says it's the Azeth House, which we know is another name for. Yeah, I didn't I didn't connect back. So to that the was Azeth. very subtle, though. That yeah. was very subtle, though. Yeah, which makes my next one definitely wrong, um, which is that I was going to say Tremolor is not physically located, but it's actually going to be inside of a Warren. Mm. Well, I think I feel like there's a connection to the Warrens through the gates. So I don't know how wrong you are. Hmm. Anyway, that's what I that's what I got. It's great. This is a free podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so anything else? I got nothing else. All right. Thank you, everybody. You can find us on Twitter at the DND Podcast. D is in David, N is in Nancy, D is in David Podcast. Uh, you can find us on all the social medias at the Duke and Duchess. Uh, but if you want to hang out with us, the best place to find us and interact with us is on Facebook at our Facebook group page. And also a reminder that we will be on Casters Guild doing the um, the cross podcast uh swapping thing uh we don't have the technology to just record it and put it well we could but we're we're not going to do that we're going to give you two separate quality podcasts <laughs> that's and what we're gonna do let's put this out there too we did not have a chance to go on social media ahead of time to solicit questions or comments that you wanted us to address so hop on the facebook group page and we can answer you there if you want to react to this episode or have any questions for us there you go thanks everybody thanks good night I knew healthcare was bad, but last week I found my wife giving herself a breast exam. <laughs> you know that women give themselves breast exams. I know. Okay. <laughs> I know that. <laughs> that is something that we do. Yeah, the, com- the comments are like, mm, there's something there, but it needs work, my little... <laughs> I just felt like it would be funny to tell you that right in that moment. I was like, does he not know?